everyone. My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway. If you're new with us, uh, good to meet you. We're going to dive into the next section of the book of Exodus this morning, and we're working our way for the next several weeks through the book of uh, Exodus in a series of conversations that we have called Rescued. Now, you know, often when we break open uh, the Old Testament text, it does a variety of things for us. And there, uh, the, it's the intention of the author to do different things in different places in the Old Testament. This is an interesting one. The passage that we're going to be looking at today really answers four questions for future generations of believers, including us. And I'm going to try to be quick this morning, but I'm going to just tip, tip our toes. Uh, is that what you say? Whatever, our toes, into the water of each of those four questions. And the four questions are, why did Pharaoh and the Egyptian uh, officials give full and eager permission for this sudden exodus of the slaves? They've been slaves for generations. Uh, Pharaoh has said no to Moses repeatedly for weeks, maybe months. Why suddenly, okay, go, get out of here. Second question, why does the Passover observance emphasize so strongly unyeasted bread? And that's not a small thing. That's a big deal. Third, how did the Israelites finance their 40 years in the desert? This is a huge group of people. How did they eat? How did, how did they live? This, question, this passage answers that for us. And fifth, who were these people? This, this band of people that, that walked out of Egypt, who were they? Uh, this passage is going to answer those questions for us. And as we read it, I want you to be listening for the answers to these questions. We're also going to tease out three application points. One of them we're going to repeat twice, so we're going to cheat. Um, you may have other application points as we walk through this, but I'm going to tease out three for us. Let's go old school this morning and stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to look at a really interesting passage of Scripture, Exodus 12 31 through 51, and again, be looking for these four questions as we go through this. This is a lengthy passage, but he's answering, he's answering four questions for future generations. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you've said, and go and bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulder in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they, look at this, plundered the Egyptians. Now, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. The interesting thing about that is both of those cities were built by Israelite slaves. These were about, there were about 600,000, note that. I'm going to have comments about this at the end. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. This is why estimates have been offered that there might have been as many as a million people that left. But that's probably not the case. And the later uh, journey indicates that uh, there really was probably nowhere near that many. I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. 
Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, it had been predicted, by the way, to God, to Abraham by God. Uh, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. That gives the impression that it was to the day on 430 years. He means to the day that these events happened. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. And now he's going to talk about the Passover. Next slide. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you've uh, bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. This is just for God's people. It goes on. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then, listen to this, he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Father, uh, open this up to us this morning. And we make ourselves available to you. Speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first question that he begins to address is, why did Pharaoh and the Egyptian officials give full and eager permission for this sudden exodus of the Israelites? Now, the original strategy of oppressing the Israelites seems to have been based almost certainly on the, the pretty logical assumption that the Israelites were originally from what was known as Asia, and the Egyptians feared that should any Asian armies want to come in and bring war to Egypt, the Israelites might side with their former neighbors. So the Egyptians reasoned that they needed to bring the Israelites under control. And, and this strategy had lasted for almost 100 years uh, during the administration of at least two pharaohs. But here in our passage, we find it just suddenly, instantly overturned. Why? Why this total reversal? Why would Pharaoh cave into every one of Yahweh's demands that he'd been saying no to for months? He even permitted them to take their flocks. Did you note that? Remember, they were slaves. It could be argued they didn't even own their own flocks. And just to make sure we get the sense of urgency in this passage, I want you to rehear the urgency in, in Pharaoh's request. If you're looking at a Bible, you can see this. Up, he says, leave, verse 31. Go, he says in verse 31. Take your flocks. Go, he says in verse 32. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave, verse 33. Otherwise, we'll die, verse 33. I mean, this is urgency. So why the change? Why so urgent? And I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? They were terrified. That's what that or else we will die phrase means in verse 33. The Egyptians had had enough of Moses and his God. They were afraid for their lives. And I want you to think back for a moment about how all of this started. At the beginning, Pharaoh's attitude 
was something like this. Okay, you know, Moses, I've heard about you. I can see you speak well-educated Egyptian, but you've identified yourself with the slave population, and you've come back here after 40 years looking more like a Bedouin than an Egyptian prince. Um, go away, and no, you cannot take our slaves with you. That's where this dialogue started, but it ended with complete capitulation by Pharaoh. Go, leave, get out of here, take your livestock, just go. Not only so, but did you notice that at the end, Pharaoh asks Moses to bless him. And in the ancient Near East, it was typical for the greater personage to bless the lesser personage. My point is this is utter surrender. And it's clearly inspired by an intense fear of what Moses' God can do. Last week, we made the point, if you were here, you might remember, that our God is good and faithful and sovereign. And, and just as part of that discussion, we tossed out Psalm 115, which says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Well, the Apostle Paul would say this same thing even more pointedly in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul says this, listen to this, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having predest been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Our God is sovereign. He will have his way. And he has his way, both with Pharaoh and with the Israelites. I mean, think of this episode, this whole thing, from the standpoint of the Israelites for a second. They had lived in Egypt over 400 years. That's longer than the United States of America has been a country. For generations, this had been their home, their life. I honestly believe that God used here the urgency and the insistence of the Egyptian officials to get the Israelites to do what must have been tough for them to do. They were uprooting their lives and traveling en masse to a place they'd never seen. So why did Pharaoh change his mind and give this full, eager permission for the Israelites to leave? Well, he was afraid of our sovereign God. The power of the most powerful man on earth was no match for the power of Almighty God. God's activity moved his purposes along, both in Pharaoh and in the Israelites. May I toss out an application point for us? You may have others. But consider this as we think about this. Observing this interaction, seeing this principle of God's sovereignty actually at work on the ground, it reminds us to hold our lives loosely. God is in control, we are not. So everything this side of heaven we hold loosely. For one thing, this means we're ready to move as soon as and just when the Lord calls us. For example, uh, what are you doing for this summer? I, I hope it includes an awesome vacation somewhere, but we hold these plans loosely. Sorry about that. What are your hopes, expectations for your children? Hold those plans loosely. By the way, that'll make you a better parent. <laughs> It'll also make you worry less. Some of you are facing a transition in your life right now, or you're near one, or you're in one. What are your plans? Well, hold those plans loosely. Be ready to move on if and whenever God calls you to do so. There's a second question that this passage intends to 
answer for future generations, people like us. Number two, why did the Passover observance so strongly emphasize unyeasted bread? You've already got this one, but let's go through it. We know from the previous instruction that Moses had given concerning the Passover that it was to be celebrated with unyeasted bread. That means bread without leaven. The Old Testament will remind us of this many more times. God was very insistent about this, and in this passage, we find out why. You see, the Passover, observ- uh, the Passover observance was meant to be a perpetual reminder of what happened on this night. On this night, they needed to leave Egypt suddenly and immediately. We just talked about this, didn't we? Holding things loosely. God knew this would happen. He wanted these people to be ready to leave in a hurry. And he wanted future generations, he wanted future generations like us to be reminded of that. They needed to hold their circumstances loosely. They needed to be ready to follow just when and just as the Lord had said without hesitation. But there's more. Let's add something. I'm sure most of you know that bread uh, has yeast, bread that has yeast in it rises uh, when it's cooked. That means it takes longer to cook, and it takes up more space when it's carried. So unyeasted bread, this unyeasted bread, first of all, allowed them to leave very quickly. They didn't have to wait for the bread to rise, plus it took up much less space when they were packing. But it also provided them with sustenance they would need through the first hours and days of their journey. More convenient, still provided the sustenance they needed. Do you see, their obedience to God facilitated their exit exit, in that it, it made it easier for them to leave, but it also provided for their needs. God was intent on meeting their needs, but he needed them to obey in order to facilitate this. Some of you have served in the military, I know, and thank you for your service. Uh, you are probably familiar with MREs. <laughs> I, looked, I looked up what the internet said about MREs, so let me quote from a military uh, site. The meal ready to eat, or MRE, is designed to sustain an individual engaged in heavy activity such as military training or during actual military operations when normal food service facilities are not available. The MRE is a totally self-contained operational ration consisting of a full meal packed in a flexible meal bag. The full bag is lightweight and fits easily into military field clothing. Each bag contains, I like this, each bag contains an entree and a variety of other components. End quote. The genius of the MRE is that it facilitates healthy and maximum calorie intake while taking up minimal space and of minimal weight. Well, in Exodus 12, we're reminded that God created the first MRE. (laughs) Application point for you to consider. God meets our needs. Our God meets our needs. In the New Testament, Paul again would remind us in Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. But listen, don't miss this. This need meeting happens in the context of our obedience. And sometimes obedience looks like and feels like sacrifice. But he always meets our needs. We're going to drill down again on that in just a second. 
Question number three, how did the Israelites finance this journey into the desert, these 40 years? Well, the first thing to make note of is that Pharaoh told them to take their flocks and herds with them, remember? Now, for generations, the Israelites had been nurturing these flocks in a a very fertile part of Egypt called Goshen. But as I said earlier, the Egyptians could very well have claimed these for themselves because they had made the Israelites their slaves. So this whole exchange is amazing. And these herds that they took with them would end up providing nourishment and, and also resources for sacrifices for the next generation. But something else even more amazing happened. The Israelites were clearly emboldened by this incredible moment in their history. They had just witnessed the intervention of their God on their behalf in a, a way that was unheard of. So with this emboldenment, they went around to Egyptian houses where the shock of the death of the firstborn was still only hours old. And they asked the homes for valuables and money and clothing. And amazingly, they got everything they asked for. This seems to have been because of the Egyptians were now terrified of the Israelites, but it also seems that God had supernaturally caused the Egyptians to think favorably toward them. As a result, the, the previously weak little descendants of Israel came away from slavery, enriched. I got a quote. I want you to listen to this one quote from a commentary I was looking at this week. He said it like this, quote, They were now suddenly wealthy. They held in their pockets and bags more precious gems and metals than they would ever have had a chance to accumulate in a lifetime of all, and all the clothes they would need for many years of living in the wilderness, end quote. So for our application point here, let's just repeat the last one, okay? Our God, our God meets our needs. Now look, there would certainly be times of uncertainty over the next many years in the desert. There would also be times of grumbling, as we will hear. But they would never go without. Because our God provides. Finally, Who were these people who left Egypt? And I want to tell you in advance, if you get confused about what I'm about to say, uh, just let me know. I'll I'll send you an article that will explain this more fully to you. But let me tease this out for us. If you look again at verse 38 in your text, you'll see that it says this. And I'll I'll read it for you if you, you don't have your Bible open. Many other people went with them. This means that there were other ethnicities, including, including, by the way, Egyptians who had become convinced that the God of these Hebrews was a God to be feared and followed. Some of these may have joined through marriage, but others simply through conviction. So already at this very early stage in their history, we see that the movement of God's people was not anywhere near as homogenous as we sometimes imagine. This was an ethnically mixed crowd. Uh, Just as an example, remember Moses married a Midianite. He would later marry a Cushite. This happened often in their history. Remember the Passover instructions that we read at the end of our passage. Verse 48 and following offers instructions on how a foreigner can become, quote, like one born in the land, end quote. In essence, this is instruction on how one converts to the worship of Yahweh and becomes one of his people. So this traveling band was more ethnically mixed than we might imagine. The second obvious feature of this group is that it was a very large crowd. But as I said when I was reading, it was probably not anywhere near over a million that we sometimes 
assume when we read this passage. This, this huge estimate of a million people, by the way, is based on two translations in this passage that are probably wrong. If, you're, if you hang around Gateway very often, you know I never do this. The, the, these guys who translated this, they know a whole lot more about Hebrew and Greek than I do. But the best commentaries and the best Hebrew-English dictionaries suggest the same thing about this. I won't go into much detail here. Again, I'd be happy to send you this if you want. But the Hebrew word elif, the Hebrew word elif is translated here thousand. This word is translated many different ways. Cattle, ox, squad, uh, tribe, um, pl platoon. But more likely in this context, in our context, it, it, instead of a thousand, it probably means something like squad. So it's probably suggesting 10 or 15 as opposed to a thousand. And the Hebrew word ragli, which follows it, is here translated, quote, men on foot. It is not translated that way anywhere else in the Old Testament. It really means something closer to foot soldier. So verse 37 in our NIV reads, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000, Eliph, men on foot, Ragley, besides women and children. The best commentary suggests that it should actually be something like, there were about 600 squads of foot soldiers besides the women and children. And the result would have been about Three, uh, about 30,000 or 35,000 people. Now, you don't have to accept my math or the math of the commentaries here. Either way, it was a very large crowd. But the part I really want us to see is the result of the translation of that word, ragly. Again, the best rendering is foot soldier. Combine this, if you would with the word that Moses used back up in verse 36. We didn't make note of it at the time when he said that the Israelites, remember this, plundered the Egyptians. That word, that was his word, plundered. And that word was always exclusively used in military context. This, the victor would plunder the vanquished. We're going to end here. Make note of this. Here's the point of that long translation discussion. God, even at this very early point in their history, was building them into an army. And as I studied this, I realized increasingly, this, is, this was not a small feature of what was happening here. He was reshaping their identity. This was very intentional on God's part. He was building them into an army, an army with God at the head. Even though they had not fought any battles yet, they would certainly need to, and pretty soon. So God was reshaping their identity from this very first night. Here's our application point. If you miss everything else, please don't miss this. This is true for us as well. We as God's people are an army. We have been called to serve. We are an army that does good. We are an army that promotes justice. We are an army engaged in spiritual battle. We are an army that carries God's love to those who have not experienced it, and we are at war. 
Often we approach our lives far too casually, but this isn't peacetime. We are at war. Look, in a moment, uh, Jennifer Wing is going to come up and lead us out. She's going to give us an explanation, lead us out into the ministry fair that I hope you'll uh, take time and participate in. She's going to describe us as a community, and we are. And that's one of the most important biblical images for us as God's people. And it's an image that compels us to participate. That's also a central image for us, for who we are here at Gateway. Jennifer will invite us all to take the, the next right step into community. But along with that, I want to suggest that we are also an army. And that image also compels us to participate. That means... Please don't miss this. You are not a spectator. You are not a consumer. You are not an audience. We're foot soldiers. Let's suit up. Let's grab our MREs and let's go to war. All right, let me pray. Lord, in the stillness, we, um, we thank you for the reminder that you meet our needs we receive the reminder that that happens in the context of obedience. We think today, Lord, about holding our lives loosely. We surrender to your sovereignty. And Father, we, we are reminded that we're, we're a squad, we're a platoon, we're, 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 we're an army. And I pray, Lord, that you would for each of us, uh, show us the, what that means, all right? Just the, 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 the right next step for us and what that means. Thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.